Testing, testing, testing. Oh, there's a delay there. Whatever. All right. From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast with your host, Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartoll in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Wednesday, the 12th of June, 2013, and I'm on summer break! What? On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I not do me a favor, favor. let me in here. And we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. It is summertime, and that's the reason I haven't been podcasting lately is because I've been crazy with school and all sorts of things. I shouldn't have been crazy with school uh, because I had a student teacher, and she graded a lot of the papers, like all the papers for creative writing at the end of the term and all the finals and stuff. So I should have had a lot more free time than I did, but I used it in other ways at school, preparing stuff for next year and uh I don't know, doing stuff for AP and whatnot. But it's summertime now, and my big project for the summer is to put out a book of short stories. And I'm almost done writing them. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff that I've put out over the past couple of years. Uh, Respawn, some of you have read, Lost Track, uh, Agoraphobia. Uh, the thing I'm writing now is called Z or Z, or and it's, it's a very clever uh, artistic title with a lot of puzzle meanings. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm also going to include some of the stuff from uh, my journal here, uh, the little things that I write for school. Some of them are silly. Uh, all of them are silly. I don't think there's anything that's really deep and meaningful in there. Uh, there's a couple of things that are less silly, but whatever. Um, so, you know, I'll probably be talking about that when it comes out. I'm probably going to do it through Amazon's Create Space or whatever their free thing is because it's easy and it's relatively cheap. And I know Amazon is kind of an evil company, but um, I don't know. I, I want something that's easy and cheap, so whatever. Anyway, uh, I'm going to start this week by talking a little bit about Zen. Uh, I started going to the Madison Zen Center, and I've been very interested in Zen for many, many years. A long time ago, I found a copy of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Somebody may have given it to me, but uh, yeah, it really struck a chord with me. It was the type of thing where, uh, you know, supposedly, I think it was maybe Freud or uh, some Western a theorist who's very important heard about Zen and said, or read some teachings of some Zen people and said, "Oh, this is what I've been trying to say all my life," and that's that's kind of how I felt when I saw when I read Zen Flesh Zen Bones, which is a collection of parables and stories and you know sort of koan type stuff. And so I, I was interested in it for a long time, and I was especially interested in this guy named Banke, who was a uh, 16th century, 17th century uh, Japanese monk, and uh, he had this whole thing about existing in the unborn Buddha mind. And he at one point said, you know, if you want to do Zazen, do Zazen. If you don't, don't. The, the key thing is to exist in the unborn Buddha mind. And, and you can do that by practicing Zazen, but you can do it in other ways as well. So the whole process of sitting Zazen, it's, you sit there and you stare at the wall, basically. And it's all about being at one with your breath and, and just sort of experiencing the ecstasy of each moment and, and that sort of thing. And I've never, you know, I've done versions of that, mostly lying down, 
um, because I've never really been into this, the way of sitting, you know, half lotus, full lotus. There's very specific ways you're supposed to sit, and uh, you can do it in a chair, but, you know, it's preferred that you be sort of on this particular kind of cushion, and, and you do, you know, there's a very ritualistic process here for specific reasons. And so I figured, okay, it's been a long time, and I, I want to give it a shot, you know, actually doing it the way you're supposed to do it, so to speak. And uh, I've been a few times to the Madison Zen Center. I will be going back. It's a very excellent place. The people are very nice and very welcoming. Um, but one time I, I went, and I was sitting in a way that was not correct, or something went wrong, and my legs fell asleep, and when it was time to stand up, I kind of fell over. And I, I felt silly, but the real problem is that um, I, 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 I want to be able to do it in a way that works for me, because more than anything, that's what Zazen's supposed to be about, is figuring out what works for you, right? Um, so, whatever. I, I'm probably going to be going back. Um, I, I'm, I'm still interested in the, the concepts of Zen. I think probably, like Christianity and Islam and Judaism and other spiritual traditions, I'm probably going to end up taking parts of this tradition and and leaving others. And in a way, I kind of feel like Zazen is one of those parts of it that I, I, I don't really... <sighs> You know, I've, I've I've adapted it in different ways for myself, and and I think that's probably what I'm going to end up doing in the long run. But I do want to give it sort of the old college try and and really see take it as far as I can take it in terms of like really experiencing it and seeing what works for me. Um, so whatever. Um, I also want to talk a little bit this week about the difference between bad people and bad actions, because we hear a lot of talk these days about bad guys and about the, the persons being evil and and so on and so forth. And and I always think of, you know, the ancient Christian axiom of love the sinner, hate the sin. And I really do think, like, that's the best way for us to think about things in order to avoid dichotomies of pure good and pure evil, which are so tempting but so foolish. They are so fallacious. You show me a person who's pure good, I will find something that you do not like about that person, right? Mother Teresa, according to Christopher Hitchens, supported the Duvalier regime for a long time, right? Um, All of our most beloved sacred individuals have done things that are bad and the most horrible people in the world you know Hitler was a vegetarian right so it's it's important i think for us to evolve beyond our simplistic thinking of this person's evil this person's good these are the good guys these are the bad guys uh because it's not a sensible way for adult humans to see the world things are much more complex than that and it's important that we have nuanced thinking in order to avoid simplicity and, and oversimplicity, right? And this goes along with what Jay Smooth said about uh, how to ta- tell someone they sound racist and, and so on and so forth. Is about, you know, it's not about who you are, it's about what you did. And, and the key to that is that it, it's important for us to wrestle with our own egos in that sense because if somebody says that you've told a lie, often we respond by saying, oh, you're saying I'm a liar? Well, that's not it. It's not that you are essentially and and at core a lying person. It is that you said something that obviously was not true, and you should own that, right? And the more we build up these egoistic visions of ourselves as being good and honest and truthful and noble and courageous, the less likely we are to admit when we do something wrong and take steps back and realize, okay, how did I get to that point, and how am I going to avoid doing that again in the future? 
Enough about that for now. We'll come back to that in the education section. I got 100 million links to talk about, news stories, and all sorts of things going on in the world. Um, but I will also mention that the take action this week is pursuant to the NSA explosive news story. Uh, so the uh, ACLU is currently suing the U.S. government, and they're encouraging people to do an online action about stopping U.S. government spying. So go on over to the website there. There's a link on my site, fbesp.org, and uh, slash synapse, and uh, check out the link to the online action from the ACLU. And now let's talk about current events. God, have I really not done this show since April? That's pathetic, Piotrowski. Get it together. Come on. Anyway, uh, the first article is about this Bangladesh factory building collapse that happened in April. Oh, God. This is one of those horrifying situations that you read about. And unfortunately, we in the West often see these things and say, oh, what a shame. You know, it, it, it's so sad. Things in Bangladesh are so messed up. Whatever. What are you going to do? What you're going to do is you're going to demand that companies not make their stuff there until they create some better working conditions for the workers. Um, Democracy Now! did a great bit about this factory building collapse. Um, I would love to play the audio, but you know what? I'm sorry. I just... I, I, there's so much to cover that if I start queuing up audio, then it's just going to take forever. So I'll just read you what the transcript says. The death toll in Bangladesh topped 200 after an eight-story garment factory building collapsed with thousands of workers inside. More than 1,000 people were injured, and an unknown number of workers at the time of this reporting in April were still trapped in the wreckage. Cracks had been found in the building, but workers say the factory owners forced them to go to work anyway. Protests broke out in the Bangladeshi capital of Dhaka today as angry workers blocked key highways, marched on several factories, and rallied outside the headquarters of Bangladesh's main manufacturers group. The disaster comes exactly five months after a massive fire killed at least 100 12 garment workers at Bangladesh's Tazreen factory, which made clothing sold by Walmart, among other companies. Uh, now, this news story and Democracy Now!, they have an interview with a guy named Charlie Kernaghan, who is an awesome guy. He was in the corporation, if you saw that movie, and if you haven't, you should. Uh, he is the director of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights. He's done a lot of excellent work, really bringing the realities and the truths about what life is like for people who live in these third world countries and make the stuff we all use every day, the stuff we wear, our cell phones, all of it, um, what their lives are like. And, and the connection between their lives, which often aren't that great, and the low prices we love seeing at Walmart and Target and Shopco or wherever else we shop, uh, there is a link there, right? And as consumers, we it, it's not all on us, obviously. I don't buy the notion that this is a problem that should be fixed by the consumer action alone, but we do have the ability to demand that Walmart and Target change their ways. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The other thing I want to say is that this is all related, directly related to the the, the decisions made by NAFTA, the World Trade Organization, the multilateral agreement on investments, which was stopped, fortunately, but, but only changed into different formats. Like all of these international trade agreements, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, all of these organizations have established certain systems of international trade that lead to things like this Bangladeshi factory collapsing and hundreds of people dying. It's there is there are direct links because those organizations have this thing that's like no barriers to free trade. And one of the barriers to free trade might be if the government of Bangladesh were to say 
if a crack if cracks appear in your factory, you can't force workers to go inside or, you know, other like minimal protections for workers. Any any, you know, minimum wage that 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 the WTO doesn't like could be seen as a barrier to free trade. This notion that there should be no barriers to free trade, this orthodoxy that markets are the thing to worship over everything leads to us worshiping markets over human rights. And it will lead to people dying in factories for as long as we refuse to challenge that notion that the WTO, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, NAFTA, all these other agreements, and there's there's other smaller versions of NAFTA with other parts of the world that the United States does, and Europe and other places, um, the, you know, the, those agreements establish a system of doing things that me it's a race to the bottom the countries who have the fewest barriers to free trade in the form of environmental protections or minimum wages or whatever they're going to get the most business and that's that that is a system that is insupportable in terms of our environment our ability to sustain ourselves as a species in the long term but it's also unsustainable in terms of human beings living a decent life as we see so anyway um, Charlie Kernigan said, uh, Bangladesh now is the second largest garment exporter in the world right after China. As a matter of fact, the Chinese government factories are moving to Bangladesh because of the low wages, 14 cents an hour up to about 24 cents an hour. The workers are hardworking. They work 14 hours a day. They'll work often seven days a week. Bangladesh is sacrificing all of these young women who are just being brutalized starvation wages. There is no right to organize in Bangladesh. There are no unions with collective contracts. Every time the workers try, like Kalpona mentioned, another guest on the show. Every time the workers try to organize, they're beaten. They bring in gang members. They threaten them. Something has to change. But, according to Fox News, nothing needs to change. No, wait, this isn't from Fox News. This is from Slate. This is a thing by some guy named Iglesias. What's his name? Here, I'm looking it up on the thing. Calm down, everybody. This is from Slate's Money Box, a blog about business and economics. Matthew Iglesias. Who is this guy? Uh, there's no bio about him. He's a guy who wrote a thing for stuff. Um, so he had a piece that said different places have different safety rules, and that's okay. Safety rules that are appropriate for the United States would be unnecessarily immiserating in much poorer Bangladesh. Rules that are appropriate in Bangladesh would be far too flimsy for the richer and more risk-averse United States. What could be clearer than that? Duh! Look, poor people love working in dangerous conditions, and that's okay. We should be okay with that. Somehow, I doubt Mr. Iglesias would be happy working in a Bangladeshi factory. I don't think he'd want his kids working in that factory, but it's okay for other people to work in those conditions, right, Mr. Y? Shut up! Um, now, fortunately, the owner of the factory in Bangladesh has been arrested. Uh, this is an article from The Guardian, and uh, it says, Mohammed Sohel Rana, a leader of the ruling Awami League's Youth Front, was arrested on Sunday by the elite Rapid Action Battalion in the Bangladesh border town of Benapol. Dhaka District Police Chief Habibur Rahman told Reuters, Police had put border authorities on alert and arrested his wife in an attempt to bring him out of hiding. Speaking near the site of the wreckage of Rana Plaza, which housed several factories making low-cost garments for Western retailers, Junior Minister for Local Government Jahangir Kabir Nanak told reporters that Rana would be brought to Dhaka by helicopter. Rescue workers cheered and clapped at the news. Later in the article, officials said the eight-story block had been built on spongy ground without the correct permits, and more than 3,000 workers, mainly young women, had been sent in on Wednesday morning despite warnings that it was structurally unsafe. 
So it's good to see that there, you know, it's not as though there were no laws broken here. But of course, again, the, the probably, you know, as John Oliver said about the NSA stuff, it's not like we're saying you broke any laws. It's really horrible that you didn't have to, right? So, okay, this guy's going to go to trial about the laws he broke. But the other question is, what laws didn't he have to break in order to cr- run this horrible f- factory that collapsed? Okay, so back on the Western side of things here, the question is, okay, again, what can we do? What what should businesses that do uh, sell things in the United States, what should they do differently? Well, one thing they could do is they could sign a worker protection agreement, but the New York Times reported right away that Walmart and The Gap have refused to sign a worker protection agreement. As American retailers face mounting pressure to join a landmark plan to improve factory safety in Bangladesh, newly found documents indicate that apparel has been produced uh, for Walmart at one of the operations in the factory building that collapsed last month, killing more than 1,100 workers. Walmart promised to stop production immediately at factories if urgent safety problems were uncovered and to notify factory owners and government authorities of improvements. But the company, the world's largest retailer, stopped short of committing to help underwrite the improvements, one of the crucial aspects of the Bangladesh safety agreement adopted by European companies. So it looks like a lot of European retailers are willing to step up and do more to help keep workers safe, but not in the U.S. because they're just about the low prices. And part of this, you know, look, hey, again, consumers are not to be held ultimately responsible in the end of all this, but we do have some culpability and... If we want to see things improve in Bangladesh, we have to get over our fundamentalist fixation on low prices about everything, because that's all consumers ever seem to care about. And the more people you see that on Black Thursday or whatever the hell it is, on you know, to get cheap stuff at Christmas, for one example, the the less likely, you know, imagine if we had a day when people said, oh, I'm going to stay outside a, a store for six hours in order to make sure I get something that was made under very safe conditions, Right. No, low prices are the only things that motivate us from what, you know, things would seem. That's what retailers care about is making the low price because that's what will get people into your store. Um, Meanwhile, at a Chinese poultry factory, a slaughterhouse, uh, a blaze killed 119 people there. A blaze at a locked poultry slaughterhouse in northeastern China killed at least 119 people on Monday, with several still unaccounted for officials and state media said triggering online outrage in a country with a grim record on fire safety. The fire broke out just after dawn near Dehui in Jilin province. The provincial government said it sent more than 500 firefighters and more than 270 doctors and nurses to the scene, evacuating 3,000 nearby residents as a precaution. Hong Kong's Phoenix Television cited family members as saying the doors were always kept locked during working hours, during which workers were forbidden to leave, and that the slaughterhouse never carried out fire drills. Back in the U.S., there was an explosion at a Texas fertilizer company. I think I reported on this in the last syncast, so I don't need to talk about this again. But there was a news story that came out of Reuters uh, about Texas fertilizer company did not heed disclosure rules before the blast. The fertilizer plant that exploded on Wednesday, obliterating part of a small Texas town and killing at least 14 people, had last year been storing 1,350 times the amount of ammonium nitrate that would normally trigger safety oversight by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. 
Uh, yet a person familiar with DHS operations said the company that owns the plant, West Fertilizer, did not tell the agency about the potentially explosive fertilizer as it is required to do, leaving one of the principal regulators of ammonium nitrate, which can also be used in bomb making, unaware of any danger there. Now, this seems like the type of thing where why don't we just revoke their corporate charter? They lied. They, they failed to disclose important information. 1,350 times the amount of ammonium nitrate you're supposed to report. But they didn't tell the Department of Homeland Security about it. So, again, is anyone going to jail? Bangladesh has a better record of arresting negligent and criminal business owners than we do. Of course, you know, they do things differently in Texas. I get it, but... That just seems like someone should go to jail and maybe that company should be shut down and their assets sold to someone else who could do the job obeying the law and not blowing up half a Texas town. What do we need all that ammonium nitrate for? Well, funny you should ask that because there was another article from grist.org uh, headlined, Fracking Drives Potentially Explosive Demand for Potentially Explosive Ammonia Factories. The U.S. could soon be home to a lot more ammonia factories, not a comforting thought. After a deadly explosion at an ammonia fertilizer plant in Texas on Wednesday evening, you can blame the fracking boom. Ammonia is used to produce fertilizer, industrial explosives like those used in mining, plastics, and other products. It's becoming cheaper to produce in the U.S. because of one of its main feedstocks is natural gas. And natural gas, in case you haven't heard, is being fracked here at a breakneck pace and sold for bargain basement prices. So watch out! Boom! It's a boom time for the fracking industry. It's explosive! And so on. Um, Josh Fox made that awesome movie Gasland, and he's coming out with another one. It's called Gasland 2. Clever title there, Josh. I love it. Uh, and they had a Q&A thing with uh, him in Rolling Stone. And uh, so here are some of the Qs and some of the As. The Q, the first Q that I'm going to quote here, what was your motivation to make a sequel to Gasland? And the A is this. The story wasn't over. We wanted to track whether or not there would be change and what, if anything, was in the way of that. We also wanted to examine how this crisis is being handled by the government. Question, what new information did you learn? Answer, because there's so much gas leakage in the fracking process and in the delivery systems, gas infrastructure is actually worse than coal in a 20-year time frame. It's leaking methane into the atmosphere, and methane is a greenhouse gas that is 105 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the 20-year time frame. So I'm looking forward to seeing Gasland 2. I don't think... Okay, here's the thing. There's a, there, there's a lot of split opinions about fracking right now, and... A lot of people who support it say that it's an awesome way to get alternative energy and uh, risks are being overblown. But I, I, I think, you know, we've heard that with regard to nuclear power and I can hear some people right now going, but nuclear power is safe, you suck! Um, we heard that about coal. We've heard that about every form of energy that's ever been created. And I, it, it's often been lies in the past. And, I, you know, as the sign in my classroom says, I'm not cynical. I've just been taking notes. Um, I don't trust the industry hacks who put out a lot of this stuff saying like, oh, Josh Fox is just blowing things out of proportion. Because um, I don't want to see Texas towns getting blown up or any other town getting blown up in order to get more natural gas that, you know, to power stuff. And, you know, what a hypocrite am I, right? I'm using energy to run this computer to spout this drivel that you're listening to. So whatever, I'm part of the problem. I get it. But, you know, hey, man, carbon-free, nuclear-free. We can consume less. We can find alternative energy sources. Because here's the thing. Look, we haven't done any serious energy consumption cutting in the United States ever. 
I mean, maybe the 70s when we thought we were running out of oil or whatever. But, like, not in the last 30 years. We've never said, well, you know, I mean, okay, so sort of we've cut down on the SUVs in the last five years, I guess, just because the economic collapse. But, but never in terms of, like, hey, maybe we can have an effect on preserving our environment and cutting down this climate change by consuming less energy. We've never even gone near that. It's always been, you know, change your light bulbs, let's build more nuclear plants, et cetera, et cetera. But we've we got to start using less energy, just period. <sighs> All right, uh, moving to happier news now. In Kuwait, a woman gets 11 years for an insulting tweet. Uh, a Kuwaiti court has sentenced a woman to 11 years in jail for insulting the emir and calling for regime change on social networking site Twitter. Uh, Huda al-Ajmi, um, a 37-year-old teacher, has also been uh, has also been convicted of misusing her mobile phone. So apparently in Kuwait, uh, probably more likely for women than men, but uh, if you insult some the emir with a tweet, you can go to prison. Hey, emir of Kuwait, you suck! There, I'm, I better never go to Kuwait. I'm getting sent to prison, although I didn't send it over Twitter. Somebody tweet that for me and see if it gets you arrested. If you do get arrested, just let me know from a Twitter a Twitter prison cell or a Kuwaiti prison cell. I wonder if there are Twitter prison cells. You used 148 characters. You're going into the hole. Um, anyway, if you go to jail in Kuwait, then Bob, I hope you're not listening to this because you might get in trouble over there in the Middle East. Uh, people going to jail. How stupid is that for an insulting tweet? Oh, God. Um, and then here's a blast from the past. I don't know why I decided to just suddenly stick this in here. Uh, this is from the You're Not Skeptical Enough file. News Archive, 1994. This is true. I heard about this once, and then I went to look it up, and it's absolutely true, and it's one of the most depressing things I've ever heard in my life. Mothers Against Drunk Driver co-founder goes to work for the liquor lobby. You're, I'm, this is, I'm not making this up. The woman who founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving after her daughter was killed by an inebriated hit-and-run driver is now a paid lobbyist for a liquor industry trade group. Candy Leitner began work in Washington, D.C. last week for the American Beverage Institute. Now, when I say last week, remember, this is 1994. Uh, the American Beverage Institute, which represents breweries and restaurants. Leitner said Thursday she's lobbying state legislatures uh, against laws to lower the legal standard for drunken driving to 0.08% blood alcohol content. Many states, including Washington, have a 010 percent standard mad mothers against drunk driving supports the lower level how sad is that how horrifying is that to know that even though her daughter was killed by a drunk driver and she spent years trying to get a lower blood alcohol content level standard for drunk driving the liquor industry came in and said here's a bunch of money you want to work for us and she said sure what what must the ghost of her dead daughter be saying right now? Like, Mom, come on, do you really need the money this badly? What are you doing? I hope when she's driving down the street, she looks in the rearview mirror and the ghost of her dead daughter is there in the back seat going, this is a nice car you got here, Mom. You paid for it with, you know, drunk driving money. You, you, what are you thinking? All right, we're actually going to end with something positive here uh, in the in the current events section. Uh, there is a really cool thing on Democracy Now! Um, from an apartheid regime bomb victim named Father Michael Lapsley on using forgiveness to heal from tragedy. 
Um, he's a former South African anti-apartheid activist who has turned his personal tragedy into a clarion call for peace and forgiveness. And I'm going to put that as one of the links of the week, and you should totally watch that interview with him. It's really interesting and really powerful. Uh, you know, for, he had his arms blown off and stuff. Like, he, he's an amazing guy. And his whole thing is, you know, you can seek out revenge and you can go for eye for an eye type stuff. It's not going to bring you any good. The, the the legacy of South Africa's Peace and Reconciliation Council, the or the commission, um, you know, the, the power of the people of East Timor to, to move on through their tragedy, uh, it just shows us this is revenge thing, this constant like we gotta bomb people. After the Boston bombings, you know, people talking about, oh, let's attack Chechnya or whatever. Like it's it's not gonna it's not gonna save you, right? So we should listen to this guy and learn from his uh, advice and experience on how forgiveness gets us closer to healing and better lives and etc and etc let's talk about economics How Austerity Kills. There's a really important piece in the New York Times uh, called How Austerity Kills. And uh, here's a bit of it. In the United States, the suicide rate, which had slowly risen since 2000, jumped during and after the 2007-2009 recession. In a new book, we estimate that the 4,750 excess suicides, that is, deaths above what pre-existing trends would predict, occurred from 2007 to 2010. Rates of such suicides were significantly greater in the states that experienced the greatest job losses. Deaths from suicide overtook deaths from car crashes in 2009. If suicides were an unavoidable consequence of economic downturns, this would just be another story about all the human toll of the Great Recession. But it isn't so. Countries that slashed health and social protection budgets, like Greece, Italy, and Spain, have seen starkly worse health outcomes than nations like Germany, Iceland, and Sweden, which maintained their social safety nets and opted for stimulus over austerity. Germany preaches the virtues of austerity for others. As scholars of public health and political economy, we have watched aghast as politicians endlessly debate debts and deficits with little regard for the human costs of their decisions. Over the past decade, we mined huge data sets from across the globe to understand how economic shocks from the Great Depression to the end of the Soviet Union to the Asian financial crisis to the Great Recession affect our health. What we have found is that people do not inevitably get sick or die because the economy has faltered. Fiscal policy, it turns out, can be a matter of life life or death. And they had the one of the co-authors of Why Austerity Kills, uh, How Austerity Kills, uh, a guy named Stuckler, they had him on Democracy Now! And it's fascinating because, uh, again, he's talking about all the research that they've done and, and the way it all works. And uh, you should totally watch this as well. Um, the guy is named David Stuckler. And he at one point he's talking about uh, people were outraged at the eviction suicide of Amaya, this woman named Amaya in either Spain or, or somewhere. Um, and, and, and how horrifying is that? Amaya Egaña. Uh, it was a case of Spain's eviction suicides. Spain has a system where when people's homes are foreclosed, even if they default on their home, they're still liable to pay back the debt. So people are plunged into poverty and arrears at the same time without support. We've seen this trigger large rises in suicides. Spain, Italy, and Greece are at the high end of increases in economic suicides. So not only are people being kicked out of their homes, but it's it, your debt still will follow you. So people are committing suicide when they get evicted. 
And it's just such a horrible nightmare scenario they're describing, but it's real. And this is why austerity seems like a nice, cute little term. You know, let's tighten our belts. And we hear about it in the U.S. with like, oh, no more deficit spending and Washington's out of control with the spending and blah, blah, blah. But these are real things that real people need. This isn't a bridge to nowhere or, you know, some boondoggle for a defense contractor. This is like life and death stuff for people. Um, yeah, so watch that. Also, news from Foxconn. Those of you who know me know that I love learning about Foxconn. But here's the latest news. Apple is actually shifting production away from Foxconn and to a new company called Pegatron. People from, what is this? This is probably Business Week. No, this is the Wall Street Journal. My bad. Uh, people familiar with the matter point to strategic reasons for the shift. Risk diversification after Foxconn's manufacturing glitches last year with the iPhone 5 that resulted in scratches on the metal casings and Apple's decision to expand its product lines amid growing competition from Samsung Electronics Company and others. Pegatron also has been willing to accept thinner profits, as it courts Apple's business analysts said. The company declined to comment about its pricing. Apple declined to comment. Foxconn's cost advantages from scale have waned as it works to improve factory conditions after a spate of high-profile worker suicides and accidents in recent years. Remember all that? When the people were jumping off the, the buildings and they put up nets? You remember all that? Yeah. Well, that's... Man, it that's made it harder for Foxconn to make profits. So and and to give cost advantages to Apple, we have to spend all this money on net so people don't jump off the buildings. So we we can only give you a hundred billion dollars in profits, not a hundred and five billion like you used to get Apple. And Apple goes, see ya, idiots. Should have found some other way to keep people from jumping off your building. The article goes on to say, although Pegatron briefly caught the public eye in 2011 due to a factory explosion that injured dozens of workers, the smaller company has largely escaped the laser-like spotlight that has forced Foxconn to increase wages and make changes to its labor practices. First of all, really? They've increased wages and they've made changes to their labor practices? Because that's news to me. I haven't heard about that from SACOM. I've heard that there's a bunch of whitewashing that's been going on and a minor increase in wages. It's not like, it ain't like Acorn Project's going to move into mansions. Thank you, the coup. Uh, but laser-like spotlight? Hey, guess what? Pegatron, you're not getting away from me. And doesn't that sound like the villain in a, in a, in a Transformers cartoon? Oh no, it's Pegatron! I pay my workers even less than Foxconn! <laughs> oh no, he's turning into a building without nets! Take that, you evil Autobots! We're not evil, you're the evil one! Oh yes, because in Transformers land, we always admit that we are evil! <laughs> you also stand around laughing about nothing for a long time. That's all 80s cartoons! <laughs> The Pope says we got to get rid of this cult of money. I, the more I hear about this Pope, the more I like him. Now, don't get me wrong. I know he's, I, I, I assume what people have told me is true, that he's a crazy social conservative and that he's, you know, retrograde on every issue that, you know, matters to you know, women and gays and abuse and incest victims and whatever. But um, he talks out about the poor. Pope Francis issued a strong call for world financial reform on Thursday. And this is from the Times of Malta. If you can't trust the Times of Malta, who can you trust? 
Pope Francis was condemning a heartless dictatorship of the economy. Amen, dude. And saying the economic crisis has made life worse for millions in rich and poor countries. Quote, We have created new idols. The worship of the golden calf of old has found a new and heartless image in the cult of money and the dictatorship of an economy which is a faceless, which is faceless and lacking any true humane goal. Pegatron and the cult of money! Business Week. Oh, okay, so there was a high-frequency trading thing that happened because Twitter said that the White House got bombed because AP got hacked, and there was a fake tweet that went out about the White House getting bombed. Wall, Wall Street tanked and then quickly recovered. And a lot of people said, oh, this shows that high-frequency trading adds liquidity because they look how fast they recovered and blah, blah, blah. That's probably not actually connected to liquidity. I don't need economics PhDs emailing me, oh, stop saying liquidity, um, but dark pools, which I'm slowly making my way through, they were talking about the, the illusion of liquidity again in the part I'm reading now. So what? Anyway, uh, the question is how many high frequency f trading firms actually use Twitter to trade? And it's from Business Week. Though it will be months before we know exactly what happened, the consensus is that a handful of trading algorithms responded to the fake tweet by selling a broad range of stocks, bonds, and commodities. As message traffic spiked and prices started declining, high-frequency trading firms started backing out of the market just as they did during the May 2010 flash crash. As a result, liquidity dried up. Hey, it is related to liquidity. Since there were suddenly relatively few buy orders to match against all those sell orders flooding the market, the dip picked up speed. Within two minutes, the Dow was down 140 points. The S&P 500 index had lost nearly 1%, and an estimated $200 billion in U.S. stock market value had vanished. As word spread that the tweet was fake, prices quickly stabilized. A chart of the day's trading shows a deep, narrow trench carved into the middle, a stab wound almost. One of the most common ways financial firms plug these data streams into their models is through middleman firms such as Ravenpack, which aggregates news from thousands of sources. So these robots are not just responding to news items, they're responding to aggregates of news items. So it's robots telling robots about what's going on in the world, and then other robots buying and selling stock based on what those other robots heard about the robots that were telling them about the news. <laughs> Markets are self-regulating. Look, this is the intelligence of the market. It's a rational marketplace. <laughs> Each day, Raven Pack's systems put out anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 quote-unquote clean messages culled from corporate newswires and professional news sources clean messages. You can trust our messages. They're clean. Uh, as it turns out, the Twitter hack was the work of the Syrian Electronic Army, and I don't really understand how Syria benefits from a fake tweet about the White House getting bombed. On Tuesday, the Syrian Electronic Army claimed credit for hacking the Associated Press's verified Twitter account, which it used to issue a short-lived but potentially disastrous tweet, falsely reporting two explosions at the White House and injury to the president. Though the fraud was quickly exposed, the tweet caused a sudden 140-point dip in the Dow and just industrial average. In addition to the AP, the hacks the SEA claims credit for include BBC, NPR, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, France 24 TV, uh, probably France 24 Television, Deutsche Welle and other human rights uh, media groups around the world. It also reportedly hacked the website and Twitter feed of Human Rights Watch website. Now, Business Week had a very interesting article recently about high-frequency trading called How the Robots Lost, High-Frequency Trading's Rise and Fall. Now, I would point out that the end of the article doesn't actually suggest that high-frequency trading is, has fallen so much as it has changed and evolved. Uh, we'll get to that. 
Uh, for the first time since its inception, high-frequency trading, the bogey machine of the markets, is in retreat. According to estimates from Rosenblatt Securities, as much as two-thirds of all stock trades in the U.S. from 2008 to 2011 were executed by high-frequency firms. Today, it's about half. So, relax, people. This isn't like old times in 2011 when two-thirds of all the stock trades... Two-thirds of all the stock trades were done by robots. Now it's just half of all stocks are being traded by robots. In 2009, high-frequency traders moved about 3.25 billion shares a day. In 2012, it was 1.6 billion a day. Speed traders aren't just trading fewer shares, they're making less money on each trade. Here's the really interesting part for me. Average profits have fallen from about a tenth of a penny per share to a twentieth of a penny. Quote, the profits have collapsed, says Mark Gorton, the founder of Tower Research Capital, one of the largest and fastest high-frequency trading firms. Quote, the easy money's gone. We're doing more things better than ever before and making less money doing it. To some extent, the drop in volume may be the result of high-frequency trading scaring investors away from stocks, particularly after the so-called flash crash of May 6, 2010, when a big future sell order filled by computers unleashed a massive sell-off. As firms spend millions trying to shave milliseconds off ex execution times, the market has sped up, but the racers have stayed even. The result? Smaller profits. As profits have shrunk, more high-frequency trading firms are resorting to something called momentum trading. Here we go. This is the evolution. Using methods similar to what Swanson helped pioneer 25 years ago, momentum traders sense the way the market is going and bet big. It can be lucrative, and it comes with enormous risks. Other high-frequency traders are using sophisticated programs to analyze news wires and headlines to get their returns, like we heard about with uh, the Twitter thing. Oh, and Raven Pack. Uh, so here's the thing. This is fascinating because it's not as though people are realizing like, oh, this is leading to flash crashes and it could completely destroy the entire global economic system. No, they're saying, let's see, this isn't making much money as it used to. If we risk even more and make it more likely that we'll bring the whole global economic system to utter collapse, could we profit more from that? And the answer is yes. Ka-ting! it's going to happen again. Look, the next crash that happens, the next big crash, will make 2008 look silly. It'll make it look like a little hiccup. Yeah? And and I'm, I don't like saying I told you so, but I'm going to say I told you so. I, it's like that scene in Friday where Ice Cube was talking to his dad and his dad got bit by the dog or whatever, and Ice Cube just goes, I told you. I told you. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say that when the next one happens because we're not making any changes. People aren't demanding that Wall Street be reformed. You saw what happened when they did Dodd Frank. That did almost nothing, and people lost their minds. Obama's a socialist. He's trying to control Wall Street. Ah. Yeah, he's trying to control Wall Street. That's what needs to happen, and we didn't. So it's gonna happen again, and it's gonna happen twice as big next time. Mark my words. You heard it here first, people. All right. Uh, meanwhile, Business Week is starting to look like a bunch of commies because they had an article that said, "Are American taxpayers subsidizing Walmart's low wages?" Uh, the Democratic staff of the and I love how they point out it was the Democratic staff. Look, we're not playing partisan politics. We recognize it's all Democrats doing this. <sighs> Uh, the staff of the U.S. House Committee on Education and the Workforce has released a report with the damning title, The Low-Wage Drag on Our Economy, Walmart's Low Wages and Their Effect on Taxpayers and Economic Growth. There's a PDF file available on my website because I got it from Business Week, and uh, you can check it out at fbsp.org synapse. The report begins, quote, While employers like Walmart seek to reap significant profits through the depression of labor costs, the social costs of this low-wage strategy are externalized. There's that word externalized. Have you heard of that? It's in a very important term. 
What it means is businesses take all the profits and any risks that they come across, they just make other people pay those risks or pay those costs. So instead of paying to get rid of their waste in an efficient way, they'll just dump it. And I don't know that Walmart's dumping a lot of waste, but, you know, a, a chemical company will dump, you know, like Mr. Burns on The Simpsons, he's stuffing his nuclear waste in the park. That's externalization. You let someone else deal with it, yeah? If people in Bangladesh are, are being hurt, somebody else will deal with that. All we care about is the low prices because that means big profits for us. Uh, low wages not only harm workers and their families, they cost taxpayers. Uh, so staff members analyze data from Wisconsin's Medicaid program. Woo! Go Badgers! Oh, yeah, what, what? Uh, which released data on enrollment by employer as of the end of 2012. Walmart stores ranked first on the list with 3,216 of its employees enrolled in Wisconsin's Medicaid program called BadgerCare. Yeah, what? Although Scott Walker's already devastated BadgerCare to begin with, so soon we'll see those lists of people getting BadgerCare going down. Yes, it's a success. Back to the article, the authors assume that the workers who are on Medicaid would also be receiving reduced price school meals, housing assistance, and other help. They figure that a single supercenter in Wisconsin, the 300 or so employees, would rely on public assistance programs that cost $904,000 a year. So, yeah, it's low prices at Walmart, but you're paying for, you know, there's a great documentary film called The High Cost of Low Prices. It's exactly how it works. It's low prices when you check out. But you pay for all that stuff when you pay taxes. You're not saving money. The, the workers are getting paid less, but they we still have to pay stuff. No such thing as a free lunch, man. And finally, uh, another article from Business Week where they expose themselves to be a bunch of bomb-throwing anarchist leftist weirdos. Why ending extreme poverty is not enough. This is awesome to see in Business Week. For most of history, most of humanity has lived on less than $1.25 a day. As recently as 1990, more than two-fifths of the population of the developing world lived in extreme poverty, and even today the proportion remains close to one-fifth. Yet even lifting all of the world's poor above the $1.25 a day line would hardly constitute victory in the war against extreme poverty. If anything, we need to get a lot more ambitious. Amen, business. We, you say it loud. What is a reasonable income floor above which we should hope all people worldwide live? At the moment, we define a $1.25 as extreme poverty and $2 as poverty, plain and simple. According to MIT economists Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, among those living on $2 a day or less in urban areas of Tanzania, only 21% have a water tap in their house. In rural areas, it is less than 2%. Now, I know some people hear this and they're like, well, but it's Tanzania. People are used to No, don't stop. Think about what it would be like if you didn't have sink in your house or a shower. I mean... It becomes a huge thing when you don't have. It's a problem. If you had that attitude, as I did for a while, I'll be honest, I used to hear about this, and I'd be like, well, but standards are different. They're used to things being different. Different places have different safety standards. Shut up. No, you're wrong. Would you live that way? Would you want to live that way? Why do you then assume it's okay for other people to live that way? Now, I'm not saying, I mean, don't get me wrong. Look, I have a 60-foot television. Everyone should have that. No, I'm not talking about that. But but water tap in your home? Come on, seriously? The number with access to electricity is similarly dire. In rural, Think about how much you freak out when the power goes out. When was the last time your power even went out? We don't even have power. Out, I mean, some of us do. Maybe you had an experience recently with a blackout. It's been years since I've had to deal with a blackout. In rural areas, nearly 1 in 10 children die before their first birthday. 
most, most from easily preventable diseases. $2 is not nearly enough to ensure the basics of the good life. The global median income is around 3 to $4 a day. Despite the fact that 50% of the population of the planet lives on less than that today, that's still an insufficient floor. Why? In part because it's less than the cost of a venti caramel frappuccino at Starbucks, and it seems wrong that most of the planet would subsist for a day on what many happily throw away on a caffeinated milkshake. More significantly, the level of expenditure still doesn't guarantee people a quality of life we should all deserve. A freaking man, Business Week. From the education file, first of all, I want to come back to that notion I mentioned before, bad people and bad actions, uh, and bring it back to schools. Because the, the orthodoxy right now, the thing we hear over and over again is bad teachers need to be fired. Bad schools have to be closed. In Chicago right now, they're closing like 100 schools. Philadelphia's closing schools. I don't think New York's closing a lot of schools, but I wouldn't be surprised if they started, and we're going to see it elsewhere. Uh, uh, Scott Walker in Wisconsin just uh, approved this expansion of vouchers. Oh, boy, I can't wait to see what that brings in terms of positive results. I wrote a letter to the editor. I don't know if they've printed it or not, but uh, we saw what happened in Louisiana. I talked about it on this podcast with the schools with no no library and, and the, the rooms with no windows and stuff. Ridiculous. So this notion about... Again, you know, this person's a bad teacher. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, I know people who teach badly, okay? But they they could probably get better if we showed them how to get better. And we, you know, whatever. They're, every person who teaches badly has different reasons why they do that, right? It's the same reason you don't look at students who are failing and go, well, the reason he's failing is because he's a bad student. No. You say, what? why is this person not doing well in school? Sometimes it's because there's abuse at home. Sometimes it's because they're bored. Sometimes it's because the materials aren't interesting. Sometimes it's because they're addicted to their cell phone. Sometimes it's because they're having suicidal thoughts. Sometimes it's because they're dealing with drug or alcohol addiction. Sometimes it's because there's some trouble at home or they're being neglected. Sometimes it's because they're having trouble with their boyfriend. So, I mean, you know, there's a million reasons why students don't do well. And there's a million reasons why teachers teach badly sometimes. But if but but the more we essentialize a person's essence connected to, based on what they do, especially when we v judge what they do based on some external test or whatever it is, but even ignoring, even if we had like, you know, good measures of how well a teacher's doing. And as I've said, I know teachers who are doing a bad job. Yes. Okay. And we need to work on that. We need to deal with that. And if they don't get better, we need to fire them. Yes. Okay. Fine. But, but I don't like the idea that, you know, this school is essentially bad, so it must be closed. This teacher is essentially bad. They must be fired. Um, and, and again, you know, don't twist my words. I, some people, you do a certain thing, you cross the line. Okay, well, I get that, fine. But I'm talking about just people who don't do a good job teaching. Let's help them get better, or let's make sure their training is better before they become teachers in the first place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, going along with this, I would like to thank the Duchess for sending me this article. Uh, there was an opinion piece in the Madison.com website, Wisconsin State Journal, that said there are no D or F schools in Wisconsin. And this is from a dude who was part of a system that uh, planned a thing. I don't know how to describe it. I'm pulling it up right now, so I'm stalling for time. You could just pause and then edit this out later. Shut up! Oh, is that Brian again? No, I'm Bob. Bob, you sound different from Bob the Businessman. I'm not related to him. Okay. 
anyway, like three people get that Bob the Businessman joke. Um, so uh, this is a guy named Miles Turner. Uh, he's the executive director of the Wisconsin Association of School District Administrators. So this isn't some whack job that's just talking about schools. Uh, he Okay, so there are no D or F schools in Wisconsin. After an ex- So there was this process that decided, tried to figure out how Wisconsin was going to change its evaluation of schools. This is a process that's been going on, and it's going to result in big changes for how schools are evaluated, how teachers are evaluated. There's this new report card that's coming out. It's, it's going to be a big deal. <laughs> and I'm not going to weigh in too heavily about whether I approve or disapprove these changes. Disapprove. But... Uh, It it is going to be big changes. So here's what he writes. After extensive review and pointed discussions, the design team concluded that its work in late 2011, it concluded its work in late 2011, all decisions were reached by consensus except for one, whether to use letter grades A through F or or categories of performance. One group believed that an A through F grading system as used in Florida and Mississippi, out of the article, I taught in Florida, it sucks to have letters associated with schools. I was in a school that I was only taught there for a year, and the test scores the year I taught there were much better than the test scores the year before. For whatever reason, there's a lot of reasons why that happens. So we went from like a B- minus to an A or whatever. And I got a cash reward for that. And I gave my cash to the... I bought a bunch of gift certificates to the mall and gave it to the custodial staff. Because I was like, I had nothing to do with this. I wasn't here last year. We're getting money for stuff. You know, the tests were like at the beginning of the year. I didn't have anything to do with that, so I don't deserve any of this money, and I gave it away. But but imagine if it had been the other way around. Imagine if I had taught there for two years or whatever, and the scores dropped significantly, and we went from an A school to a C-minus school. How would I feel about that? I'm doing a bad job. I don't know what to do differently, so I'll just feel bad. Stupid. Idiotic. All right. So anyway, back to the article. Uh, the, the opinion piece. This isn't a news article. There's an important difference, and people don't often make that distinction. Shut up, Piotrowski. You don't need to do that now. Where did Bob go? I'm still here. Okay. Uh, one group believed that A through F system as used in Florida and Mississippi would be easier for the public to understand. They think you're stupid. That's me, not the article. Others supported a performance-based reporting system similar to the one in Massachusetts, which categorized schools by how well they met clearly defined expectations. By a margin of 2 to 1, members voted to reject letter grades, believing that the labels D, F, and failing schools were inaccurate measures of how well schools were performing. Instead, schools were graded 0 through 100 in various areas. Although we set out to create a reporting system, we in fact created a political tool to serve a hidden agenda. There was never any suggestion that the report card should be used to create a broad policy mandate that would send taxpayer money to private schools, which have not received state report cards. That's the voucher expansion. Three of the four co-chairs of the design team and the vast majority of members I have spoken with, including some who voted for the letter grade option, have indicated they do not support the use of the report card to classify schools as failing. Many of us feel betrayed that our efforts to create a fair and balanced accountability system to help schools improve has been hijacked to create a statewide policy of school vouchers, ding, 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 which will hurt public education in our state. What could have been a valid report card system capable of evolving into an accurate measure of performance to improve schools has become a political tool to expand a voucher system. Nowhere in statute or policy will you find the words failing schools or the letter grades D and F. They occur only in the rhetoric of politicians who want to advance private school vouchers. So, again, like, I, I, you know, there's a lot of people who say, like, this whole accountability thing, the whole business model thing, it's just a way to expand private education and to get vouchers expanded and to line the pockets of companies that are profiting from all this. I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's that direct. And to be honest, sometimes I feel like that's a red herring, that we go chasing that part of it, 
And, and instead, you know, if we take people at their word that they really want what's best for students, and I think a lot of people who push these business model reforms really do want what's best for students, but if we write them off as, you know, lackeys of a for-profit voucher system or privatized education, you know, people, then we're, we're losing potential allies and we're, we're missing a chance to make a human connection. Um, but <laughs> when the executive director of the state association of school superintendents calls this um, a political tool to expand a voucher system, I, I'm not, I can't argue with that. If he's been through the process and this is what he sees, ridiculous. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times had a really good article about pay-for-performance pitfalls. And I've reported on this whole notion of pay-for-performance. There was a report that came out recently, which was the first really comprehensive review of merit pay for teachers, and it said basically that the whole thing's a disaster. It didn't work. It didn't cause any increases in student performance, blah, blah, blah. But they start out by talking about the cheating scandal in Atlanta. I've reported on that. You heard it here first. Uh, where In D.C., you know, it also happened there. What happened in Atlanta is only the latest instance in which performance incentives tempted employees into opportunistic, even illegal behavior. During the 2008 credit crisis, performance-based pay lured mortgage brokers into approving unqualified borrowers and financial executives into making risky derivative bets. Incentive pay played a leading role in the Enron and WorldCom frauds. It was implicated in the 1980s savings and loan crisis. These cases show the underbelly of pay for performance. Explicit incentives work for simple tasks, where an employee controls the outcome and where product quality is easily assessed. For example, offering employees of a moving company $20 for every sofa they move in an hour without damage. It's pretty clear whether the sofas got moved and whether they got damaged. But what about complex, hard-to-monitor tasks, where the desired outcome is difficult to measure and subject to influences outside the employee's control, such as educating a child or restoring a patient to health? It is almost impossible to design objective performance metrics that can't be met through illegal or undesirable behavior. In the case of education, it could be falsifying student test scores. In the case of healthcare, it could be controlling blood pressure through medications that make patients feel sick instead of persuading patients to exercise. And when you create a system that inadvertently incentivizes illegal or undesirable behavior, you get more of it. And as a side note, there's a really interesting piece on, uh, I think it was Philosophy Bites or some other podcast about philosophy where this guy was talking about how philosophy differs from, you know, like political activism or whatever. It was about green incentive, green virtues. That's what it was. And I'm pretty sure it was Philosophy Bites. And the whole thing was about, I'll see if I can find a link for green virtues. Um, the, the notion was that, you know, philosophy often seeks to expand the public's conception of what things are virtuous or, or which morality system is best for us as a society and as a civilization. And it's not about pushing one piece of legislation or, or whatever it is. And he, he made the connection with John Stuart Mill and uh, how he was so influential in the long term, even though there were surely, you know, politicians or, you know, social activists who were active at the time who had more of an impact in the short term. And I think that's a really interesting distinction because I see my work as being a mixture of those two things, you know, as a teacher, as a writer, as a pundit on the podcast circuit, uh, circuit, you mean you talking into your mic in your bedroom? It's not my bedroom. It's my home office. Uh, where'd Bob go? I'm still here. I'm just choosing to be quiet. Who's this other guy commenting? Shut up. Get back to your point. What was my point? Um, I was trying to say, um, less. I'm not doing so well with that. No, you're not. You suck. Oh, thanks a lot, Bob. 
Did you call me? No, other Bob. Oh, yeah, me. Get out of here. Other Bob, the businessman. I'm out of here, suckers. Um, there's a um again. You suck. Shut up, Bob. I'm going crazy here. My work is a combination of long-term and short-term efforts. Yeah? That's what our teaching is. You're planting seeds that germinate through courses of lives, but you're also trying to get the student to put his goddamn cell phone away and read the story in front of him. So it's, you know, you want him to, okay, more immediate than that, learn how to use the right form of your. That can be the difference in getting a job or not, right? There's your short-term thing you need to get down. Get down! Uh, everybody party! Uh, so, <laughs> uh, it's not much better than, um... Yeah, it is. How about a contemplative pause? Hmm. Now you're just thinking about what you're, how you're saying hmm instead of what you're going to say next. Bob, you're not helping here. Here's my point. I don't have a point anymore. Let's move on to the next article. Uh, Denver Post, Common Core, Cutting Edge or Dull Blade? The Common Core, for those who don't know, is a new system of nationwide standards they're going to be common to all states and all schools everywhere. They're the real core things. We've got to make sure students are learning. The question is, what do, they, what do we do if they don't learn them? And the answer is, eh, hope they learn them soon, pretty much. Um, we can, that's a conversation for another time. But here's the thing. This is not new. This is old wine in new bottles. And I hate to tell people this because there are some people who are really on board with the Common Core thing. And, you know, look, I don't want to be a cantankerous curmudgeon who sees something new coming down the pike of education reform and immediately just says, that's new, I don't like it. Or it's different, I have to do more work, I don't like it. I do want to get involved in change that will be beneficial for students. But that's the key word here. Will it actually be beneficial for students? Because I'll tell you this, I have seen in my 10 years of teaching, 13 if you want to be technical about it, I have seen more than a dozen trends in that decade. I've seen a dozen different trends about how we're going to organize curriculum and how we're going to change our assessments and how we're going to do response to intervention and all these other things. And to be honest, I don't really think I relate to my students very differently than I used to 10 years ago. I, I mean, obviously, I've grown and evolved as a teacher and as a person, so I've found better ways to connect to young people, yes. But the structural changes haven't really resulted in a, a remarkable increase in achievement from, from low-achieving students, any significant motivational increases, um, you know, I mean, we make progress, but again, it's about planting those seeds. And the question about how you help a kid do better has to start with why the kid isn't doing well. And as I said earlier, there's a million reasons why students don't do well. And I wrote a piece about this called How Do Students Get Better? And you have to start with the individual student. What's wrong? Why aren't you doing well right now? But that rarely, if ever, gets asked of the student. Instead, teachers fret endlessly about what we're doing wrong. And sometimes we are doing things wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to get teachers off the hook here. But I feel like I've said the same thing a million times. So I'm going to move back to this article. Denver Post. Here we go. As pertains to reading, one might assume that more can only be a good thing. 
As a college English instructor, I can attest it's not necessarily so. And a move toward task-based utilitarian reading that crowds out literature, biography, and young fiction is the worst thing Colorado could bequeath to generations to come. In 1978, Larry Mikulecki uh, of University of Indiana Bloomington introduced the term illiteracy to describe the condition of being able to read but not wanting to. For any number of reasons, studies show that it describes about half of Americans. Not illiterate, but illiterate. Mikulecki warned that even then... It warned even then that so-called back-to-basics movements that hammered on reading as a utilitarian skill rather than one that would inspire and elevate would result in many people who thought of reading as a chore and who avoided it out of high school. Amen! That's exactly what we're seeing now! Half my students, at least, probably two-thirds, are in that exact same boat. I'm shocked when students say, I love reading. I'm like, really? Awesome! The school system did not crush your love of reading! Sweet! And how do you get someone to love reading again? I mean, seriously, I think I've been able to help students by showing them the right books, but, but what else can you, you can't put that on a standardized test. That doesn't show up in your annual yearly progress. That's not part of the common core. Show kids the right, what's my goal of professional development goal for next year? Show more kids the right books. What? No, that's not okay as a goal. That's exactly what I see too often in my own class. This is back in the article now. I see too often in my own classroom. The high school graduate so hammered by school accountability and state-imposed emphasis on reading that instead of curling up with a good book after graduation, he or she will run from it. Out of the article, I would add that we can't ignore, as I often see ignored, the, the carnival of distraction as embodied by cell phones and video games and instant messaging and Facebook and all that. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like you can't live in that carnival I play video games all the time. I love Facebook and stuff, but I also read books and, and we, you know, it's a balancing act and a lot of students aren't bothering with balancing. They're just saying to hell with books. And that's a, the, the carnival is part of it. The carnival of distraction is a big part of it. I think it is. Uh, and it's nothing new. Well, you know, Plato said we shouldn't read poetry because it'll excite the emotions too much, but you know, we have to talk about that at least. Anyway, um, yeah, one of the pathologies of school reform is the quest to treat education as training, the fashioning of square pegs for the square holes of set out by industry. I think the of is extraneous there. No question careers and tangible rewards should always be in the picture. Ultimately, however, true education is a pursuit whose ultimate rewards are intangible and intrinsic and as far from testable as is a simile. A smile. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. Similes are totally testable. What are you talking about? That's half of a test is similes. No, as far from testable as a smile is. Okay. Um, also, thanks to the Duchess for telling me about a Washington Post article about Tea Party groups are rallying against the Common Core. Ooh, politics makes for some strange bedfellows. I'm in bed with a Tea Party? What? Tea Party groups over the past few weeks have suddenly and successfully pressured Republican governors to reassess their support for a rare bipartisan initiative backed by President Obama to overhaul the nation's public schools. Activists have donned matching t-shirts and packed buses bound for state legislative hearing rooms in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, grilled Georgia education officials at a local Republican Party breakfast, and deluged Michigan lawmakers with phone calls urging opposition to the Common Core state standards. How about that? Now, Part of that, I think, is that the Tea Party movement is a lot to do with sort of being lockstep. As soon as there is a suspected affront to states' rights or, you know, the, the integrity of the American way, uh, they just alert their 
base and, and everyone goes screaming to public events and starts making a racket. Obviously, I think that's a good thing when it happens to, you know, challenge this common core orthodoxy. But as we saw with the, what David Cross called the healthcare yellings, uh, it doesn't always have a positive outcome. And I don't really like the notion that some a few leaders will snap their fingers and millions of people will start foaming at the mouth about this next issue that comes along. Um, but in this case, I'm willing to say awesome because it's something that I don't like. Uh, Psychology Today had a very interesting article about, the headline was, Be Glad for Our Failure to Catch China's Schools. Now, a little background here. There there are all these news reports happening all the time about how the United States is last in the developed world, about, oh, we suck when it comes to standardized testing and math and reading and all the rest of it, and, and you know, Finland's better than us, China's better than us, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's not like there's there's no... There's nothing to learn from those reports. They're sad in some ways. However, Psychology Today has a very interesting point here about this. You might think the Chinese educational leaders would be happy that their kids are scoring so high on these international competitions, but they're not. More and more, they realize that their system is failing terribly. At the same time that we are continuing to try to be more like them, they are trying, though without much success so far, to be more like us. Or wish, or like we were before we began trying so hard to be like them. They see that their system is quashing creativity and initiative with the result that it produces decent bureaucrats and number crunchers, but very few inventors and entrepreneurs. In response to the same PISA report that led Duncan to his wake-up call, Arnie Duncan there, the U.S. Secretary of Education, uh, the PISA or PISA, P-I-S-A is the international test that all these standards are, you know, these comparisons are based on. So Arnie Duncan issued a wake-up call. we got to make our schools better so that we can compete with China. At the same, in response to that same report, uh, Zhang Zhuajin, probably saying it wrong, a director of the International Division of Peking University High School, wrote this in the Wall Street Journal, quote, the failings of a rote memorization system are well known. Lack of social and practical skills, absence of self-discipline and imagination, loss of curiosity and passion for learning. One way we will know when we are succeeding in changing our schools is when those PISA scores come down. So, once again, we see the orthodoxy about test scores not telling a full picture, or even the most important picture. If China is realizing how badly they're screwing up despite their high scores, maybe we ought to recognize how well we're doing with some things despite our low scores. Test scores are not the whole thing. All right, moving away from test scores, uh, <laughs> two articles about France. This crazy, crazy week in French education. Ça c'est fou! Get it! Je peux pas penser des des mots. Qu'est-ce qui se passe dans les dans les lycées au la France? A French teacher shows pupils horror movie Saw. As someone on the Reddit said, uh, I think the kid said he wanted to play on the seesaw, not that he wanted to see Saw. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Clément, a maths teacher. It doesn't even tell. It's a British article, is because it's from uh, maths. Oh no, it's a French uh, newspaper. Sorry. Uh, which which French newspaper is it? Uh, the local. All right. Uh, if you can't trust a local, can you trust? Uh, France's news leader, as Stephen Colbert would say. Okay, so Jean-Baptiste Clément, a maths teacher at a college in Colombes near Paris, is alleged to have shown a class full of 11-year-old pupils the infamously gruesome horror movie Saw on Monday. Clément told the children, this will be your first horror film. Wait, this will be your first horror film. Uh, Celui-ci sera votre premier film avec le horror. 
Monday's incident is not the first instance of outrageous behavior by a teacher in France in recent months. Well, that's probably true no matter what news story you're reporting anywhere in the world. This is not the only time a teacher's done something stupid. Teachers do stupid things all the time. Uh, in May, the local reported how a teacher in the southern city of Montpellier found herself in a spot of bother. <laughs> a spot of bother. This must be a British person writing this. After using a swastika to teach geometry to a group of primary school pupils. Ah, uh, swastikas. In February... Now... Uh, no, 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 I'll come back to that. In February, a teacher in northern France was investigated for giving a class the assignment of writing their own suicide letter. Crazy! What are you doing, French? Qu'est-ce que tu fais? Um, qu'est-ce que vous faites? I know. Sorry, French-speaking people. Je suis désolé. S'il vous plaît. Accept my apologies. Je ne peux pas me souvenir comment dit ça. Um... Now, what was it? Oh, yeah, uh, the swastika. Here's the thing. Look, a lot of people probably know this, but I want to reinforce it anyway, because it came up with something else recently in my class. <laughs> I, were not, I was not teaching geometry with swastikas. Um, we, no, it, there's that other again. Shut up, Bob. Quick, get out of my head. You're like Jack Donaghy in Liz's head. Uh, hmm. The swastika predated the Nazis, yeah? It was a traditional symbol in especially, you know, southern Asia to do with the four directions and, like, the four winds and stuff, yeah? And then the Nazis came and took it and changed it and made it horrible. But we ought to know about its existence before the Nazis. And the same is true about the phrase Arbeit macht frei, because I mentioned that in class and how I often do feel like work helps me to be free. And I say, anyone know the phrase Arbeit macht frei? And my students all start, the ones who know, are like, dude, that's what the Nazis put outside of Buchenwald and Auschwitz. And they're right, the Nazis did do that. But they stole the phrase from a German writer who wrote a book about a bunch of ne'er-do-wells and, you know, thieves and stuff who did work and found it to be liberating. So, again, I refuse to let the Nazis have a phrase like that, even though they used it in such a horrible and atrocious way, because... The, the non-ironic essence of that saying is true. Work does help us to become free. Um, so, yeah, D whatever. And finally, Psychology Today had an article, Why French Kids Don't Have ADHD. In the United States, at least 9% of school-aged children have been diagnosed with ADHD and are taking pharmaceutical medications. In France, the percentage of kids diagnosed and medicated for ADHD is less than 0.5%. So less than 1%. How come the epidemic of ADHD, which has become firmly established in the United States, has almost completely passed over children in France? Is ADHD a biological neurological disorder? Surprisingly, the answer to this question depends on whether you live in France or in the United States. In the U.S., child psychiatrists consider ADHD to be a biological disorder with biological causes, and the preferred treatment is also biological, psychostimulant medications such as Ritalin and Adderall. French child psychiatrists, on the other hand, view ADHD as a medical condition that has psychosocial and situational causes. Instead of treating children's focusing and behavioral problems with drugs, French doctors prefer to look for the underlying issue that is causing the child distress, not in the child's brain, but in the child's social context. Then they choose to treat the underlying social context problem with psychotherapy or family counseling. This is a very different way of seeing things from the American tendency to attribute all symptoms to a biological dysfunction, such as chemical imbalance in the child's brain. French child psychiatrists don't use the DSM-4 to diagnose problems. To the extent that French clinicians are successful at finding and repairing what has gone awry in the child's social context, fewer children qualify for the ADHD diagnosis. Moreover, the definition of ADHD is not as broad as in the American system, which in my view tends to pathologize much of what is normal childhood behavior. The DSM specifically does not consider underlying causes. 
It thus leads clinicians to give the ADHD diagnosis to a much larger number of psych, uh, symptomatic children while also encouraging them to treat those children with pharmaceuticals. And as I've said before on this show and elsewhere, the, when, when the U.S. government was trying to decide whether ADHD was a legitimate medical condition that would be recognized by the U.S. government, and the reason that's important is because then it brings treatment dollars from the federal government... When, when that deliberation was going on, the number one group that was lobbying to get ADHD recognized by the federal government was the pharmaceutical industries, especially those companies that were making drugs that treated ADHD, Ritalin, Adderall, etc. So that's something to keep in mind. And there's a really good PBS Frontline documentary about all that you can check out. It's called like Medicating Kids or something like that. I've linked to it before. Check my website, fbsp.org slash synapse. It's time for us to talk about killer robots. Violate robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Business Week had, okay, so Obama made this big speech about drones, and, and Medea Benjamin got up and started yelling about it, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so Business Week had a really good summary of Obama's speech about drones, and he didn't make any significant changes. There's a couple of small things, which I'm happy to see, but not nearly what we were all hoping he might say, but probably wouldn't, and he didn't. While calling the U.S. drone campaign justified and legal, Obama said he was tightening the rules governing who can be targeted in the strikes by unmanned aircraft. The U.S. military, instead of the Central Intelligence Agency, will be the lead authority for drone strikes, administration officials said. Obama said he will work with Congress on how to add scrutiny to a largely secret program. Human rights activists who are challenging the legality of drone strikes and calling for the closing of Guantanamo reacted with qualified praise. Obama should have acted sooner, they said, and too many details remain secret or have yet to be decided. And as they always say, the devil's in the details, right? Uh, Business Week had a really good article. Oh, that was Business Week. Yeah, Business Week also had a really good map uh, called The Drone War, a comprehensive map of lethal U.S. attacks. And it has uh, it's interactive, and you can click on things, and it's uh, really interesting and enlightening. It has uh, parts of Yemen where there have been drone strikes, parts of Pakistan, Somalia, uh, zooming in, the number of attacks, the number of people killed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, really informative, just good numbers. Uh, I don't know if they distinguish between innocent civilians and, and enemy combatants, but as we know, the U.S. government has said that if you're anywhere near an enemy combatant, you're no longer an innocent civilian, so that takes care of that problem. That's me slapping my hands as if to clean them off from dust or what have you. Medea Benjamin was on Democracy Now! talking about why she disrupted Obama's speech. And again, ideally, I would pull audio from the actual show, but that takes more time. And I've, you know, I'm already into 80 minutes now, and, and, and I've got so many other things I'm doing. I'm trying to write a book here, people. Get off my back! But it sounds so much better. Shut up, Bob! Medea Benjamin said, President Obama said that I wasn't listening to him. I was hanging on every single word, and I really expected to hear some major policy changes, and I didn't know whether I was going to speak up or not. Out of the article... Now, hang on a second. I'm sorry, Medea. I don't believe that. I mean, maybe you weren't going to speak up if he said the things you wanted him to say, but to say you were really expecting him to say some major policy changes... I'm skeptical. Anyway, uh, what? that's a minor nitpick, I know. Uh, if he had said something like, to show my commitment to Guantanamo, next week we will start releasing those prisoners who have been cleared, or if he had said, we're taking drones out of the hands of the CIA immediately, or we're going to immediately say that signature strikes where people are killed on the basis of suspicious behavior will no longer be allowed, if he had said anything like that, anything like that significant, I wouldn't have spoken up. So, okay, 
I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I agree that that's what he should have said. So why don't you just say that's what he should have said. And the reason I spoke up because he didn't say anything like that and whatever. Um, also, thanks to the Duchess for an article about UN report wants moratorium on killer robots. Killer robots that can attack targets without any human input, quote, should not have the power of life and death over human beings, a new draft UN report says. The report for the UN Human Rights Commission, posted online this week, deals with legal and philosophical issues involved in giving robots lethal powers over humans, echoing countless science fiction novels and films. I'm looking forward to the day when we can talk about killer robots without talking about you know, Predator, Terminator, and stuff. I mean, those movies are important, and I think RoboCop is a much more important film than either of those because of the philosophical and and logistical issues. In the same way that iRobot, the book, is actually an important thing for us to consider when we talk about, you know, the three rules of robotics are actually really important for us to deal with as we make killer robots. RoboCop's Directive 4 is also an important philosophical thing for us to consider when it comes to how robots act and operate. But maybe we can even move beyond talking about movies altogether. Anyway, uh, we got to get people interested in this stuff. Yeah, I think people are already interested in killer robots without you talking about Terminator. Report author Christoph Haynes, a South African professor of human rights law, and no, I will not attempt a South African accent because I will screw it up. Like Liz Lemon on 30 Rock. No, she'll be South African. Yeah, she'll be British. Uh, a South African professor of human rights law calls for a worldwide moratorium on the testing, production, assembly, transfer, acquisition, deployment, and use of killer robots until an international conference can develop rules for their use. Sounds like a plan to me. In the report, Haynes calls them Lethal Autonomous Robotics, or LARs for short, and says, quote, Decisions over life and death in armed conflict may require compassion and intuition. Humans, while they are fallible, at least might possess these qualities, whereas robots definitely do not. Yes, I said robots. That's the new way I'm going to say it now. There's also robots, which is a fun way to say it. Robots is so standard. How about robots or robots? He notes the arguments of robot proponents that death-dealing autonomous weapons, quote, will not be susceptible to some of the human shortcomings that may undermine the protection of life. Typically, they would not act out of revenge, panic, anger, spite, prejudice, or fear. Moreover, unless specifically programmed to do so, robots would not cause intentional suffering on civilian populations, for example, through torture. Robots also do not rape. So, I, I, I interesting... You don't have to comment on everything, you know, idiot. Yeah, I know. Uh, and from the Resistance to Robot Hegemony file, National Geographic had a thing about teaching robots to anticipate human actions. It's not going well. Robots are getting robots are getting smarter, but they are still easily confused. Obviously, a robot wrote that headline. Know what freaks out a robot? Stuff like cluttered rooms and messy desks. Awesome. So this messy desk here, I've got it's it's I'm it's messy because I'm trying to thwart robots. I thought you were going to call them robots. Shut up, Bob. Uh, even the most advanced bots are confounded by the diverse environments where humans live and work. But if a robot can navigate only a well-ordered lab, what practical use is it? Not much, says computer scientist Ashutosh Saxena, an assistant professor in the computer science department at Cornell University. Saxena is one of an up-and-coming group of roboticists trying to create autonomous robots that can interact smoothly with humans in everyday life. Saxena is working to give robots the ability to anticipate our actions and, in a sense, anticipate our wants and needs. You need this broccoli. No, I don't. Thank you, Bob the robot. Why is everything named Bob? 
Because Bob's a common name. I don't want to be called Bob. You want to name me something else. You're not trying to anticipate my wants and needs, Bob. You're trying to f- change my wants and needs. There's a thin line between the two. Yeah, well, I still won't, don't want you trying to change my thoughts and wants and needs. Stop trying to change what I want. You're trying to do the same thing to me. Stop slapping me. Get off me. Ah, my neck. Uh, ha ha. Thanks, Jason Guller, for, uh, there's a Simpsons food court at Universal Studios. Uh, you can, it's got Moe's Tavern, and there's a great slideshow here, I'll link to it. That's got to be one of the top three of the week. Uh, <laughs> link of the week, I'll put that in there. What's that beeping coming from outside? Anyway, uh, Universal Studios, yeah, there's a Krusty Burger, uh, going through these photos here, uh, Quickie Mart, yeah, uh, they sell Duff beer, quote-unquote, it's probably soda, Moe's Bar, uh, Moe's Cabin. Uh, suddenly the slideshow stopped for no reason. Uh, they sell flaming Moe's, probably not actually flaming Moe's. Uh, Krusty Burger, Squishies at the Super uh, Quickie Mart, et cetera, et cetera, Luigi's. There's cool stuff. Thank you, Jason. That's really cool. Next time we're in Florida, we're going to have to go to that. Um, more good news. Modeling scouts target anorexia patients. How sick is this? A Stockholm treatment center for eating disorders says talent scouts from modeling agencies had approached their patients outside the clinic, hoping to recruit them. Quote, they were outside the building and waited for the girls to go out for a walk, the director of the public institution, Anna Maria Offsandeberg, told Swedish news agency TT without naming the agencies. One of those contacted was in a wheelchair because she was so skinny, Offsandeberg said. Oh, God. Meanwhile, uh... Business Week reported on the Tumblr bucket. Yahoo needs to make cash off it. That's right. Yahoo bought Tumblr. And the question is, how are you going to make money off of this? And I'm always endlessly amused whenever a tech company buys another tech company. And the first thing they have to figure out is, all right, how do we make money off of this thing? Because a lot of tech companies don't make any money for like five, ten years that they start up. And then it becomes, okay, how do you make money off it? And usually when you try to make money off it, you kill the thing. So... YouTube has not been killed yet by Google, and I don't think it's going to be killed anytime soon. But tell me those ads aren't annoying. Tell me those ads don't suck. Tell me you're not staring at that timer for when it changes into skip ad. Seriously. It can't. I mean, maybe they're being effective, and I mean, we still see them, so I guess they are. Anyway, whatever. Um, nobody cares. That's what Jen Kirkman does when she's trying to get back on topic, and I love it because it's amusing. You can't just do everything Jen Kirkman does. Shut up, Bob. Yahoo has purchased Tumblr at a particularly difficult time in the life cycle of a web startup. The users are there, creating and reading posts, asking the company for nothing except reliable server performance. And by the way, I am one of those people, the Cinestream. Check it out, cinestream.tumblr.com. Uh, and nothing in the way of major changes. Now it falls to Yahoo to figure out how to turn that traffic into revenue, a problem that continues to bedevil pretty much every popular social media property on the web. And I would point out that Yahoo has not done a great job in recent years being relevant because those ads about Yahoo, those were like the last thing Yahoo ever did that anybody noticed, so far as I can tell. Nobody uses Yahoo Mail. You see someone with a Yahoo email account, you're like, really? Yahoo? <laughs> Idiot. Now, and that's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense to be contemptuous of someone because they have a Yahoo email account compared to a Gmail account. I mean, I like Gmail. I think it's a better interface than Yahoo, but it's not really all that different. We just have this attitude of we're all hipsters when it comes to email accounts. Like, oh, you have a Yahoo account? <laughs> really? Please. 
Anyway, uh, much of what appeals to Tom, I don't know if you can tell, but there's black helicopters circling my home because I'm bringing the real. Uh, the man can't handle it. Much of what appeals to Tumblr's audience might be hard to sell ads against, said Alan Weiner. <laughs> Alan, uh, an analyst at Gartner, he says that Yahoo's task will be to break up Tumblr into different buckets of content. Buckets of content. How about that? Uh, focusing on what it can sell ads against and letting the other stuff live on without interference or revenue. Quote, there's a bucket that will have no monetary value. None, he said. End quote. That's my bucket. The Cinestream is in the bucket that has no monetary value. Now, you know what's funny? I say that, but I just had this long talk with John Broad about, oh, everything is, you, you're going to make money off of what you help to remix or whatever. And I'm just like, that's weird to me, and it may be the wave of the future. I don't know. I can't tell where this stuff's going. Nobody can, and neither can anyone else, I would contend to you. It may be the case that that's the model for the future. Like, I contributed to this meme. I deserve a fraction of a penny. But you can't tell me for sure that's going to happen. It's an interesting idea, and I'm open to discussing it, but I, I'm always very skeptical of futurists of any stripe. All right, here's something from the Good News File. Uh, reading This is not our last story. Don't worry. There's something even better than the last story. Uh, reading literature makes us smarter and nicer. <clears throat> Duh. But it's good to have the research to back this up, right? Raymond Marr, a psychologist at York University in Canada, and Keith Oatley, a professor emeritus of cognitive psychology at the University of Toronto, reported in studies published in 2006 and 2009 that individuals who often read fiction appear to be better able to understand other people, empathize with them, and view the world from their perspective. This link persisted even after the researchers factored in the possibility that more empathetic individuals might choose to read more novels. A 2010 study by Marr found a similar result in young children. The more stories they had read to them, the keener their theory of mind or mental model of other people's intentions. How cool is that? And I would argue that it's probably also true about people who write fiction because even more so is a question of, okay, what is motivating this person? What's it like to be in this other person's shoes, etc., etc.? And finally, now that we're an hour and a half in, I'm sorry for the long show, and anyone who's turned off... Uh, or annoyed by the length of the show. I don't know what to tell you. I hope it's worthwhile. I just sort of stuff things into this Google Docs doc uh, whenever I find an interesting news article. And, and, and the only thing I think that would make people really annoyed and not want to listen, aside from my annoying voice, is hearing me prattle on about how sorry I am that the show is going on so long. Because that's not good radio. Nobody cares. If you're listening, you're listening. If not... Please tell me why you're not. But if you're listening this far, you probably aren't. Shut up, Piotrowski. Come on, get back to work. Uh, you sound like the squeaky voice teen from The Simpsons now. And finally, from the BBC, urgent need to remove space debris. There is now so much debris in orbit that the space environment is close to a cascade of collisions that would make space extremely hazardous, a major international meeting has concluded. Its summary position stated there was an urgent need, quote-unquote, urgent need to start pulling redundant objects out of the sky. Scientists estimate there are nearly 30,000 items circling the Earth, larger than 10 centimeters in size. The Darmstadt meeting was presented with an array of concepts that included the use of nets, harpoons, tentacles, ion thrusters, and lasers. Lasers! Nets, harpoons, tentacles, ion thrusters, and lasers. And lasers. Nets, harpoons, tentacles, 
tentacle. I want to know how you're going to use tentacles to get stuff out of the sky. All right, time for hip hop. Let's talk. We need to talk about Sir Mix a lot because everybody knows Sir Mix a lot from his song about the buttocks, as Bender says on Futurama. I thought you liked to sit in your apartment listening to music about the buttocks. Um, but his first album was the only good album he ever put out, and I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about this on this podcast. I'm going to talk about it today because Sir Mix a lot used to be cool, and then he got stupid, and his butt song blew up. But before the butt song, there was Swass. Now, what is Swass? Many of you are asking. Uh, Garrett, if you're listening, you're you're paying attention. I'm gonna have to add a link to Garrett because he knows about Swass. He and I have bonded over Swass. You're probably familiar with the melody to his title track off that album. Are you familiar with the Pussycat Dolls? You've heard this song before. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was a freak like me? Yeah, okay, everyone knows that song. Or if you don't, it's not a big deal because it's a dumb song. But the reason it's important is because the melody for that chorus comes right from Sir mix a song, Swaz. Kiss my neck. Kiss my neck. That's a quality line. pounds of gold with royalty checks. And I'm Swaz. Don't you wish your boyfriend like me. Don't you wish your boyfriend like me. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, it's, it's crazy, because nobody knows about Swass, so now you know about Swass, and anytime you hear that Pussycat Dolls song, you have a responsibility to bust out a YouTube link to Swass, and, uh, let people know where that melody comes from, because it's, it's a thing. Um, also on that album, it started out with this song about buttermilk biscuits, now I'm your big mall dropper, mud duck stopper, fila on the bottom and Adidas on the topper, transform spreading, big beat matching, I can tell you getting jealous by the looks I'm catching. So nobody, again, you know about the butt song, but you don't know about buttermilk biscuits. How can you not know about buttermilk biscuits? I hate them speakers, MC beater, drop five grand on my bird white meter, smooth like ice, don't get nice, just turn up the box for the mix till I slice the you. This is how the album started. Listen to that, 808. Y'all ready to get busy? <laughs> now that's gangster. I don't care what anybody says. That's hardcore right there. Buttermilk Biscuits, what? Now, the big hit from that album was Posse on Broadway. Yeah. My Posse's on Broadway. Uh. Sensation at home away from home in the black bins limo with the cellular phone. I'm calling up the posse. It's time to get to ripping. I freaking eat sunroof to keep you suckers tripping. That was the jam back in the day. 1988, something like that. Oh my god. I used to listen to that every day. I to this day I still love it. I can I know all the lyrics by heart. Uh if you're jealous, turn around. The 808 kick keeps us closer to the ground. We're getting good grip from the 50 series tires. The Alpines, bum bum, but I need the volume higher. Anyway, uh, so that's back when Sir Mix-a-Lot was cool. Check out the album Swass. It's got a really cool version of Iron Man. You know what? I'm going to find that. Look, it's like a match in my hand. Too black to tan. Heavy metal rhythm from a one-man band. Bust my knuckles in a junkyard scuffle. Whipping adversaries with a brass belt buckle. 
Yeah. Uh, there's also a dumb song called Bremolo, which uh, we'll just pretend like that song never got made. But Rippin' is fun because it uses the Alouette uh, melody. I'll play that too. I'm going to play the whole album Swass right now. No, I'm not. 24K strap on my truck. Got a big gold rope. Cold land on my neck. Got a free in my arm. Cold kicking on sand. Never get ill because I'm too damn far. Got a fucking Trans Am with a dual exhaust. T-Town is live. But Seattle is my home hood. Ornament is gold because I don't like chrome. That's Rippin'. Yes, classic. So, whatever. It, whether you like Mix-A-Lot's butt song or not, check out Swass. It's a good album. And, uh, yeah, that's some classic hip-hop from back in the day. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait a minute. The quote of the week comes from Catherine Mansfield. I shouldn't call it quote of the week. It's quote of the month or quote of the every other month. Anyway, uh, Catherine Mansfield was born in 1888, died in 1923. She was a modernist short story writer from New Zealand. She was friends with Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence. She died from tuberculosis at the age of 34. That's sad. In 1920, she wrote this. Everything in life that we really accept undergoes a change. So suffering must become love. This is the mystery. It sure is. Rest in peace, Catherine Mansfield. All right, that's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Uh, I'm going to be redesigning the Justified Text Works site this summer because if I'm going to be sending people there from the book, I need to have a decent website. And it's a good site right now, but it's, it's not designed very well, I know. So I'm going to redesign it. Anyway, shout-outs this week to John Mouse for the Medea Ben. Benjamin photo and uh, shout outs to the Duchess for all the news articles she sent and Jason Gar and other people who sent me stuff. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to say. I'm a very busy Listen, man. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Yeah. Deal with it. Thanks for listening, people, and please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can reach me at esp at fbesp.org or you can tweet me at Duke Scaff. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. <sighs> Man. All right, I got to go get my car, and I got to call some people and do some stuff. I should eat lunch.